Good morning. I just realized I'm responsible for starting us today because Rich isn't here. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. And I'm, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Baron Lerner to speak with us today. We'll be talking on Two Doctors, Two Generations, the Evolution of Medical Ethics. And I see that we have at least two and maybe three generations here in the audience. So we should have a lively discussion. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Baron. Uh, he's currently a professor in the departments of medicine and population health at NYU Medical Center. Um, it's amazing to think of him in any place other than Columbia because he spent so much time there. He received his uh, MD from Columbia University in 1986 uh, and was there until 2012 with a brief hiatus in uh, Washington where he earned his PhD from the University of Washington in 1996. It was kind of a um, poignant moment for me to see that the years of our residency together at Columbia were relegated to just two lines on a CV that has grown and is, is quite impressive. Um, Baron and I met when we were residents on the wards at the old Columbia Hospital, right as we were talking at dinner last night at the sort of a, one of the many cruxes and turning points in the way medicine is practiced in the US, uh, Libby Zion had died. Uh, resident work hour restrictions were just starting to emerge. And I think Columbia was the first place where night floats and resident work hour restrictions were just starting to be implemented. And so I think that gives him a unique perspective to talk with us about um, the evolution of medical ethics, among other things. Uh, He's written five books. Uh, maybe most well known is his book, The Breast Cancer Wars, Hope, Fear, and the Pursuit of a Cure in 20th Century America, um, for which he received several awards, including the William H. Welch Medal of the American Association for the History of Medicine. And this book was named a most notable book by the American Library Association. He's written on tuberculosis, drunk driving, um, when Illness Goes Public, Celebrity Patients and How We Look at Medicine. And then most recently, his book that was published last month, The Good Doctor, A Father, A Son, and the Evolution of Medical Ethics. Barron is also prolific in scholarly journals and contributes to the popular press, uh, writing for the Atlantic Monthly uh, and frequently for the New York Times. He's appeared on all of our favorite um, NPR shows, including Fresh Air. And um, he, when he isn't doing all of that, he's practicing general internal medicine at Bellevue. So I think he brings a number of perspectives that will be both familiar and enlightening. And it's my pleasure to welcome you, Baron, to talk to us today. Thanks, uh, Kathy. Uh, great to be here. I, I must remark, I, and I think all the clinicians in the audience would agree, that even though that 
period of time may be the shortest line on my current CV. It's the most formative, uh, formative few years of my career, uh, as we all know. Uh, so I I'm going to talk today about the new book, which the book is called The Good Doctor. And I'm going to obviously can't cover it all, but I'm going to talk about uh, my dad's medical career, my medical career, which is what the book is about, and focus today on the changes in ethics that uh, are manifested in our two careers. And, and so I'll forge ahead. But great to be here. Appreciate it. OK, so a little bit of an outline. This, after all, is a grand round. Uh, so I'm going to start out and talk a little bit about my dad's background, uh, our family history then uh, talk about his medical training and philosophy. Uh, I'll shift gears and talk about uh, my training a little bit in uh, medical school uh, residency and then subsequent to that. Uh, toward the end, I'm going to present five cases uh, from my dad's medical career that I gleaned out of many uh, that I think will indicate some interesting examples about the themes I'm going to talk about this morning. And I'll, I'll come up with some conclusions at the end about what this historical journey may tell us for the future of medicine. How did I do this, uh, write this book, and do this project? Well, I probably could not have done it without the journals that my dad kept. So I got lucky. As a historian, that's what you're always looking for. And they were sitting in, in my house. Uh, my dad started, the, actually the top one there is the first journal that he wrote, started doing this on the, my first birthday. And he would write a note to me every year about what went on in the family and things like that. And when my sister was born, he would write a note to her on her birthday every year. Um, but at, beginning in the 1970s, he actually uh, began to write more spontaneously. So the, at the bottom there, you see a, a legal pad. And he would just, in an almost cathartic way, would start to write um, a, about medical topics, something going on in the family, just when the idea struck him. I think in, in some ways it was very cathartic, again, for him. So I had this huge stack of stuff, uh, both the formal journals and these more informal writings to, to draw on. Um, I did keep a diary myself as a third-year medical student. I was one of those people who thought they could write a book about their third-year medical experience. I made it through two rotations until I burned out, but I went back and read it. Uh, I reviewed the relevant historical and medical literature from the time uh, that I'll be talking about. And I did some selective interviewing, mostly of some doctors who had trained with my dad and, and worked with him subsequently. I didn't really do a comprehensive exploration of doctoring in this era, but I got some good anecdotes and stories from some folks. OK, so who was my dad? Um, he was born in Cleveland in 1932. That's a, that picture in the back, I think, is his Grad, college graduation, and my uncle is there. And th those are his grandparents, so my great-grandparents. Uh, he grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home and uh, enrolled in medical school in 1955. He was the first doctor in any line of any family tree that, uh, of ours. Um, not only that, he was actually the first professional. Everyone else in the family to that point had been what well, I guess we'd call working class. Uh, my um, grandfather, for example, his father was a furrier. Uh, and I mention this because uh, this was very important in the choice of medicine as a career for my dad. He very much saw his uh, career as a doctor as one in which he could give back to the people who 
had made his life possible. So again, my grandfather, who was the furrier, had to drop out of school at age 12 and start working. And my dad had the opportunity in, in his era to become a professional in medicine, that one of the main reasons he chose medicine, he wrote about this over and over, was now he could give back to those folks. It, it also had a, a tie into the Holocaust. When in the mid-1940s, my dad was a teenager and met some relatives who actually had come over from Europe after the war who had managed to survive. And uh, my dad realized what had gone on in the concentration camps and made him even more grateful that my great-grandparents had thought to come to this country and he had narrowly missed the Holocaust. So again, it was something that he was always grateful for. And in this sense, medicine was very much a calling for him. This was something that was, was so important because of the life that others in his family had lived. Uh, now, my dad went to Western Reserve School of Medicine, which of course now is Case Western Reserve. And fortunately, it was in the 1950s really in the forefront of humanistic medical education. To that point, all medical schools basically had two years of lecture, and then you sort of went on the wards and followed doctors around. But Case had a, a bunch of initiatives at that point, which are similar to what most places are doing now. Case said, let's make students into colleagues of doctors. And one of the things they did was to assign every student who came in first year a pregnant woman who was their patient. They went and did house calls. They followed them in their clinic visits. They went to the birth and, and uh, the post-birth uh, visits, that sort of thing. They would come back and talk in small groups to a preceptor who they met the first week of medical school, that sort of thing. Um, when my dad met his preceptor the first week of medical school, it was Benjamin Spock. Um, so uh, again, a great opportunity for him. Um, when he finished medical school, he went to Boston and did his residency at the BI in internal medicine, and then uh, moved on to Tufts, where he did his infectious disease fellowship with uh, a famous doctor named Louis Weinstein. Uh, a bit about Weinstein, he was very much one of the founding fathers of infectious diseases. Uh, initially a microbiologist, did his internal medicine training, and then went into ID. Now there was no field of ID at the time. Um, that really came in the 1960s. What doctors interested in infectious diseases did then was they went and worked at isolation hospitals, right? And there was one outside of Boston called the John C. Haynes Memorial. And Weinstein was the head doctor there for many years and saw a vast number of interesting infections that were, many of which were dying out, things like diphtheria, whooping cough, polio, tuberculosis, all these diseases that were on the wane. Weinstein saw a lot of them, gave him great clinical acumen, which he passed on to his trainees. Um, my dad was very enamored of Weinstein. Not everybody was. He was a, a tough guy, big ego. Um, but my dad really found someone that he wanted to emulate. And I'll show you what uh, my dad wrote about his years with Weinstein and why he admired him so much. But this quote obviously has as much to do with my dad, I think, as it does with Weinstein. So my dad wrote, I found by an incredible stroke of good fortune the proper niche for my medical talents and teaching research instincts by falling under the spell of a mesmerizing dynamic teacher who is fanatic, encyclopedic, opinionated, scholarly, and demanding of his specialty and all those who aspire to it or intersect its vast boundaries. So that's the sort of doctor my dad was and, and wanted to be. 
Um, a, a bit about, uh, fam I mentioned family trees before, you can have a family tree and your family you can also have a medical family tree. And I, I just put this down here, historians like to do this sort of thing, who was trained by who and you trace it back. So Weinstein's mentor was a guy named Chester Kiefer, a very famous internist at Boston City Hospital. Kiefer in turn had been trained by Paul Beeson, the famous Yale uh, infectious disease doctor. Beeson had been a house officer at Harvard when Soma Weiss, a famous Hungarian doctor known for describing syncope, vasovagal syncope and the Mallory Weiss tear, was chief resident at Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. You go back two more generations and you wind up with William Osler, the great um, Johns Hopkins clinician from the late 19th and early 20th century. And I, I do this little family tree to indicate what sort of folks these were. And first and foremost, they were great diagnosticians. So I think sometimes you see pictures of from that era of 25 doctors in white coats sort of uh, marching through the hall, going to see a patient, and there's the doctor at the, at the patient's bedside and everyone standing behind them. That was very much the image of this era, the great diagnostician. And these guys could go in in an era before MRIs and CT scans and often make diagnoses that other doctors had missed. Um, they were also very humanistic uh, doctors. The patient came first. So devotion to patients was first and foremost. Uh, most of these people came to the hospital seven days a week, uh, stayed late, came early in the morning. Uh, patient care and understanding your patients and getting to know your patients was foremost and as important as learning the medicine. Uh, they were all passionate teachers, as I've suggested. And realistically, um, I put here, they rarely took no for an answer. I think that's to, uh, to remind us that they often had pretty big egos. These were very smart guys. They were very well known uh, and sometimes were not interested in banter about what the diagnosis might be when they were sure they knew the diagnosis. So um, a sometimes a tough crowd, but very impressive people. Um, back to my dad. Uh, he finished up in Boston in 1966, was actually an assistant professor at Tufts for a while, but decided to come home to Cleveland much to my mother's chagrin, um, but there they were. And uh, my dad, for uh, it, you know, by all accounts, and certainly from all the discussions I've had with people, was a, just a terrific clinician, ID doctor. He read uh, 12 journals regularly, ID and other journals, end to end. And as such, uh, had enormous knowledge of the literature. He had, uh, was very interested in the best science. This was an era in which the number of randomized controlled trials was beginning to increase, and my dad knew that literature very well and relied on it. However, he also was very willing to use what we might call his clinical judgment. So if there was no data from a randomized controlled trial, or if the data from the randomized controlled trial didn't jibe with his clinical experience, he might be willing to go off standard protocols and treat patients in a particular way. And one of the cases I'm going to talk about later will demonstrate that. Um, I put uh, a picture of that thing at the bottom for the younger doctors here. That's known as a textbook. Um, <laughs> this is what we used to learn from. Our house was lined with textbooks and journal runs that my dad would constantly be flipping through to find something he had once read. He did that thing where he would get the journals and rip out articles 
uh, and then create a folder with an, with an article, and the folders were all over the house. And then on rounds, uh, on a particular day, he might see someone with an infection, and then he'd be, oh my god, where's that folder that I cut that article out of? And he would try to find it and bring it into rounds. Um, uh, let me give you uh, just a few uh, cases um, in which, very briefly, Again, I had access to all these cases my dad had talked about um, where he did sort of impressive infectious disease diagnosis, just to give you the sense of the sort of clinician he was. Uh, one of the cases, uh, and these are all back when he was in Cleveland, mostly from the 70s, I think, 70s and, and early 80s. So he saw, in one case, a man with a infected neck with a, a, a pus in the neck who had gone to a bunch of doctors. They couldn't figure out what it was or what to do about it. And my dad identified this as something called Ludwig's Phlegmon, described by a 19th century German doctor. Uh, no one around had ever seen one, but my dad had seen one in medical school and actually had scrubbed in on the operation in medical school. Uh, the operation supposedly was something called a guillotine operation. You had to go like this and do a very wide incision. So my dad went to the operating room in this particular case to show the surgeon how to do the incision for this particular patient. Uh, my dad saw a teenager with endocarditis, came in with spiking fevers. And, uh, and um, they grew uh, bugs out of, the blood out of the blood cultures and identified the organisms, put the patient on antibiotics. Uh, however, the patient kept spiking. The team was getting nervous. They said, let's call in the surgeons. We're probably going to need to replace the valve. My dad said, he really should be getting better. We have the bugs. He's on the proper antibiotics. Can I, I want to go examine the patient one more time. Went in the room, listened, uh, did an exam, heard some rolls at the left base, even though the chest film was clear, said this patient has a nosocomial pneumonia, put him on an additional antibiotic, patient defervesced surgery, not necessary. Uh, he saw a young woman with a purplish rash all over her body, mostly in her right forearm. Uh, he saw her on the way home from the hospital one day. He did a house call, went into the house, uh, and he looked at the rash, and he said, I think you have something called meningococcemia, but I'm not positive. Uh, took a, a sample from one of the lesions, grant, uh, put it on a slide from his bag, drove back to the hospital, um, looked at it under the microscope, confirmed the diagnosis, stopped on the way home at her pharmacy to pick up the antibiotics she, he wanted her to start taking immediately and uh, gave them to her. Uh, and then in a little bit of showing, showing off on the way uh, out of the house, he apparently said to her, um, by the way, have you been playing tennis recently? And uh, she said, yes, I actually did play tennis yesterday, even though I was sick. And, he said, and she said, how did you know that? And he said, the phenomenon of, of place of least resistance, I could see that the infection it was predominating in your right forearm. So a little daring do. Um, and he uh, finally he saw a cancer patient who had a highly resistant serratia, gram-negative bug. All the antibiotics available were resistant. Uh, and my dad decided to put the patient on some tetracycline, even though it supposedly had no activity. He thought that this would uh, move things enough that the body's immune system could take over and the patient could be treated. And indeed, that's what happened. So just a sense of um, what he was doing on the wards on, a, on an average day. Um, but uh, more important, I think, for the purposes of this talk is the way he knew his patients as people. Um, I put Jews and non-Jews. My dad spent most of his career in Cleveland affiliated with Case at Mount Sinai Hospital. So 
a similar place to, to Beth Israel in Boston, founded initially by Jews for Jewish patients. But by this point, Mount Sinai actually had a very large African-American population because of the location and the changing neighborhood. And throughout his notes, my dad always made a point of saying he treated all of his patients with equal intensity. Um, he did what he called afternoon revisits. He liked to go back in the afternoon. Fortunately, he was primarily a consultant. He didn't have a huge private practice. So in the afternoons, he was often able to go back to the wards, examine the patient again, check on the blood tests, um, talk to the patient, and give the patient an update. Uh, as I suggested already, he attended his patient's uh, operations at times and also their x-rays. Uh, he liked to say that it was the, it was nice for the patient if her, if the doctor was at, at the X-ray it would be it'd be helpful. But I always felt that the real reason he went to the X-rays was he didn't trust the readings of the radiologist. So one of whom was his brother, by the way. So it made for an interesting <laughs> family dynamic. Um, and and another interesting thing I let I, I learned from his journals was that uh, the reason we only went on vacation as a family at the end of month. So when I was growing up, we either went away the last two weeks of July or the last two weeks of August, and never the beginning of the month. And I sort of assumed that's when people went on vacation, right? Uh, and only later when I was reading did, did he indicate that uh, he only went away at the end of the month because he wanted the, the teams would switch at the beginning of the month, new house staff, new fellows, new set of patients. And he was the attending. And he wanted to make sure that the team knew the patients well enough for a couple weeks before he felt comfortable going away. Now, having said that, when he was on, when we were on vacation, he was talking to the doctors all the time anyway. Um, so um, my dad uh, had very high standards, as I was suggesting, and he felt that other people on the medical team needed to have the same high standards. And when they didn't, uh, he could get upset. He was um, willing at times to criticize his colleagues, not for honest errors, but those he felt were cutting corners and not doing their best for patients and dress them down, sometimes in public. Um, he was well known, I, about 10 people told me the same story of re remembering him standing at the nurse's station when a patient came in with an acute infection that he felt needed antibiotics right away, standing, pounding his fist, saying this patient needs antibiotics now, and he wouldn't leave until the nurse had given the antibiotics. Um, I always felt that in a, an era now where we have sepsis protocols, and we're talking about this exact thing, you've got to get the antibiotics in fest. This was like the world's first sepsis protocol. My dad just pounding, a, pounding at the nurse's station. Um, this sort of behavior earned him the sobriquet of the madman of the Mount Sinai, um, which I feel like he sort of wore as a badge of honor, um, in, in a sense. But the important point here was that his vast knowledge of the medical literature, plus the, all the time that he spent getting to know his patients, made him think that it was his duty to make decisions for patients. Why wouldn't he, right? It didn't make any sense for a doctor to know all this literature, for a doctor to spend all this time getting to know his patients, and then at the end of the day, say to the patient, here's some options. What do you think, we, what do you think I should do? What do you think we should do? Just didn't make sense to him. Therefore. He was an unabashed paternalist, right? So when people said, use the expression, doctor knows best, which I think make many doctors or most doctors sort of cringe a little bit and say, eh, uh, not my dad. He felt doctor knew best, especially if a doctor was uh, very dedicated. Um, and, and as such, 
um, he uh, used this paternalism in a way in that era that was common. Um, part of this meant, at times, if he felt it was necessary to get a patient to do what he thought was right, he would uh, keep conceal information. So he might not tell a patient everything that was going on. He might dole out certain bits of information to the family, not to the patient, or vice versa. And again, this was not uncommon in that era. And the whole point here was, for doing that, was not to deceive for the sake of deceiving. The point was to get the patient to take the treatment that he felt the patient needed to take. He did another thing, um, which again, it was sort of ethically dubious, um, which I talk about extensively in the book, but I'm not really going to talk about today, which is he took care of my family members and got very involved in particularly my grandmothers as they were deteriorating and, and dying in practically becoming their doctors and uh, crossed the line here, I think, in many complicated ways. But for the purposes of this talk, he did it for the same reasons. He felt he knew them the best. He knew what they did and didn't want. And he would be able to guide their treatments better than any other doctor, which is why he did this. And, and here's a quote uh, indicating his philosophy that I pulled out of one of his writings. Patients trapped in a desperate situation need a firm but concerned individual to take charge of their health-related problems. So there it is pretty much stated. OK, so a little bit about me. Um, I grew up as a non-observant Jew. My dad actually, um, despite his Orthodox upbringing, was not, after his bar mitzvah, pretty much gave that up and transmitted that to me. So we were Jewish but sort of secular Jews. Um, I was a history major in college. Um, which, uh, and I loved, very much loved uh, doing history in high school. And when I got to uh, college, um, it was an era in which we were finally beginning to see people major not just in biology and chemistry, right? So in my dad's era, my dad was a biology major, as was the vast majority of uh, people uh, in, in that era in college who wanted to go to medical school. Um, but I was lucky enough to be a history major, and folks there told me, sure, if you complete your pre-med requirements, you can uh, also be a history major. Um, but the big break for me in, in my career, one of the big breaks, was when I got to medical school at Columbia in 1982, there was a historian who had just arrived there as well named David Rothman. Some of you probably know the name. He was a, uh, had written some books on the history of mental institutions. And therefore was considered a some type of a historian of medicine. And Columbia, just like other medical schools in this era, in the early 1980s said, you know what? It's time for us to start teaching this bioethics thing, right? Everybody's talking about it. We can't just, students can't be just learn their ethics now from hanging around with senior doctors. There's a, there's a new discipline here. And Rothman was the person chosen by Columbia to come up and talk about these ethical issues that were emerging in medicine. So just some of the things that he taught us in, in this first year course, one of them was about human experimentation. So we talked, for example, about the Tuskegee scandal, which broke in 1972. That The Bad Blood is the book about that, in which Af African-American men with syphilis were untreated. We talked about the Willowbrook scandal, in which uh, children were given fed hepatitis uh, at, at an institution in New York. We talked about the Karen Ann Quinlan case from 1975, in which the parents wanted their severely uh, 
mentally uh, daughter, basically PVS from an overdose, to be taken off the ventilator. The doctor said, no, we can't do that. The case went to the New Jersey Supreme Court. We talked about the baby doe case. Uh, and the issue of what did you do with severely disabled neonates? Who got to decide? The doctors, like in the past, or should the families get to decide how aggressive to be? We talked about the Harvard Brain Death uh, Committee from 1968, in which the doctors there had uh, discussed a new type of death, brain death, which was different than cardiac death. So it, the ferment was very exciting. There were all these issues in medicine that were percolating that in the past, doctors had just been in charge of, right? Doctors got to make the decisions. But now these other people were coming into medicine and making the decisions in part because the doctors had made some bad decisions. So if you think about Tuskegee, for the most obvious example, or Willowbrook, who did these doctors think they were doing experimentation without consent, taking advantage of vulnerable populations, et cetera, et cetera. Hence, income the bioethicists to try to fix things. I love this stuff. I mean, I, again, I've been a history major uh, in college, and I love the history, and I love the controversial stuff that we were learning in medical school concurrent with learning the medicine. Um, I, uh, as Dr. Kirkland said, I became an internist doing my residency at Columbia. Um, but later on was lucky again, uh, fortunately, thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, to go uh, out to Seattle and eventually get degrees in history and bioethics uh, uh, in the early 1990s. Um, and when I, it became time for me to do my own research and write a dissertation and, and eventually start writing books, I focused on this exact era that I'd learned about first in medical school, this era in which my dad's and his peers had been paternalist doctors doing things without consent. Um, and I, I got very interested in studying that myself and learning more about that era. So for example, my dissertation, which became the first book there, Contagion and Confinement, was about a tuberculosis sanatorium in Seattle in which the doctors at the sanatorium basically ran uh, a jail for TB patients. Um, what was going on in Seattle was there were enormous number of Skid Row alcoholics who had TB. That was a predominant TB population. And the health department had set up a locked ward in the institution for non-compliant infectious patients with TB. Um, but the doctors at this sanatorium over time began to use the locked ward as a way to punish patients who misbehaved at the institution, who went AWOL, who drank on the premises. So guys it, at the sanatorium who were no longer infectious and had no public health reasons strictly to be in the lock ward would get sent there for two weeks, would get sent for four weeks for the second um, time they did something, and the doctors were doing this themselves. So I was interested in how did the doctors um, rationalize having done this, and how as doctors were they doing this sort of thing? The, my second book was on uh, breast cancer um, that was mentioned before. He, in this book, I focused a lot on the surgeons after World War II who had come back from, uh, from the war with a very aggressive approach to the treatment of cancer, not just breast cancer, but all cancers. And this was the era in which doctors did something called the super radical mastectomy, where they actually took out part of the ribs and went uh, by the internal mammary arteries and did these enormous operations to try to treat breast cancer. For other cancers, they were taking off limbs 
of patients to try to get every last cancer cell. And in this book, I concluded that a lot of this had less to do with the medical value of these types of treatments than sort of a bravado among the surgeons to see just how much tissue they could get uh, removed safely to try to cure patients. Then in the 1970s, when women first began to come to breast surgeons and say, I think I don't want a radical mastectomy because some doctors had begun to say you could do surgery for smaller breast cancers much less aggressively. Many of these surgeons, some of whom I interviewed who are still alive, were extremely derisive to these women. Instead of saying, giving them the opportunity, they said these other uh, operations were unsafe, they needed radical mastectomies, they needed them right away, and many were very condescending and in many cases arrogant. And again, so I was studying uh, this generation that jived with my father and said, how did doctors who sort of, you know, came into a profession to help people, how had they gotten to this place where at the, at the least were being overly paternalistic and in some cases being downright uh, inappropriate, I thought, with their patients. So what, um, what I did as I studied this was to become a fervent devotee of what bioethics was promoting, which was patient autonomy and informed consent, right? Let's go to the opposite of what went on in that generation my dad's generation. So uh, for me, uh, informed consent became the key. Um, the key, uh, I th thought, was providing patients with information to empower them to make decisions. So it was not the doctor's choice to say, you need a radical mastectomy. It was the doctor's job to say, there are several options for treating your breast cancer, and here are the pros and cons of these options. What do you want us to do? Right? So that was the new medicine that was being introduced. A great example of this was DNR laws. So when, uh, when, we, were resident, when we were all residents together in New York in the late 1980s, um, the first DNR law was passed actually in New York in 1988. And I remember a lot of the senior doctors there being extremely derisive about this. Because in the past, doctors pretty much got to say who would be resuscitated and who was not going to be resuscitated based on issues of prognosis. And now, all of a sudden, we had all these forms that we had to go fill out, right, DNR forms. And, uh, but as a, one of the younger doctors, having studied all this other information, I was, a, uh, you know, I hated filling out the forms as much as possible. And I realized that patients' families sometimes made the wrong decision. But I was very supportive of this. I said, you know what? It's not the doctor's job to decide who lives and dies. Let's go to patients and have these discussions. And that extended to living wills and healthcare proxies as well. It's time to empower patients. So the, the point I'm making is this was a, a very forceful uh, and important issue for me. OK, so I'm going to, uh, having given you that background, let me jump into the five cases that I'm going to present of my dad's that, again, will, I think, indicate uh, various interesting aspects of his career. Then I'm going to conclude with some thoughts about the future. OK. So uh, the first case was an elderly woman my dad was seeing at Mount Sinai Hospital in Cleveland. And she happened to be an Orthodox Jew. And he was very comfortable taking care of Orthodox Jewish patients. I mentioned his background before. He'd grown up in an Orthodox Jewish home. A lot of Orthodox Jews came to Mount Sinai. Um, but this particular patient was causing some problems. She had fevers, chills, and a cough, infiltrates on her chest x-ray, 
but they couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, they tried a couple of antibiotics, she didn't get better. They tried to get sputum samples, couldn't grow anything, still spiking fevers. Uh, and at some point, my dad said to the patient, look, we've run out of options here. It's time to go in and, and take out a piece of tissue and do an open lung biopsy. It's the only way we're going to figure out what's going on. Uh, now, this patient was had complete capacity. She was in her 70s. Uh, she said she was too old for surgery. She didn't want any surgery. But she was actually quite healthy. Uh, and my dad, again, said, look, I understand. Nobody wants surgery, especially at your age. But this is not such a big operation. We're going to take out a little piece of rib. We're going to do as small an incision as, as we have to. But we can get the answer. And what are we going to do? Send you home? Not any better. That doesn't make any sense. Nevertheless, the patient was steadfast. Um, so my dad came up with one other idea. He said, would it be OK if I asked an infectious disease specialist from one of the other hospitals to come by and see you? patient said, sure. So um, my dad asked his buddy, Marty McHenry, from the Cleveland Clinic to come over and examine the patient. McHenry, uh, turns out, was actually a very devout Catholic, a grown-up devout Catholic, and had actually stayed very religious throughout his life. Um, and he examined the patient, took a history from her, and eventually said to her, Mrs. So-and-so, um, I have to tell you, uh, in my experience, uh, Dr. Lerner is absolutely correct here. And the only thing we can do to do this is an open lung biopsy. Patient said, thank you, Dr. McHenry. Um, I understand that. But as I told Dr. Lerner, uh, I don't want to have surgery. Uh, McHenry said, I understand. Uh, but before I leave, can I, can I ask you one more question? Patient said, sure. And McHenry said, would it be OK if I prayed for you? So apparently, there was a quiet silence in the room. And the patient said, that would be fine, Dr. McHenry. So uh, he took his rosary out of his uh, white, white coat, uh, knelt down, and started praying. And as you can see, the patient had the biopsy the next day. Uh, I love that story, because people talk about uh, things like the art of medicine. And I, I think that's a great example. Um, case number two, this was a uh, Middle-aged woman my dad was seeing uh, for nine years. She had leukemia, uh, multiple infections, um, was immunocompromised much of the time, and he got to know her extremely well. He wrote of her, he was always available even for the most trivial of problems or questions. And I still remember this patient calling our house. Um, she was very courteous. She never called during dinner, but she usually called right after dinner. Um, again, and I remember my dad speaking to her during our vacations. Um, he was very, very involved. And the reason was that this patient was having a particularly difficult time dealing with her disease. Some patients sort of go with the flow and, and are cooperative. But she was very frustrated and angry. It was her personality to, to be like this. And my dad thought if he could be, uh, give her access and let her vent when he was around, she would be more compliant with other doctors and with her treatments. Uh, so he wrote of her, she screams and carries on when the going gets tough, knowing that I understand and will never reproach her, never abandon her, whatever. Case number three. This was an elderly woman who had ophthalmic shingles, obviously a serious disease that can cause blindness. Um, she had been given some treatment at the hospital initially, which was based on a, random, a recent randomized controlled <coughs> trial. Um, and she wasn't getting better. Uh, my dad had an article 
in a, from a retrospective study of the use of using RSC, an anti-leukemia drug, in these cases. Um, I found the actual article in his papers. It was like a retrospective study of seven patients. He had read it, he'd underlined it, circled all these things. This was an article that he, that he presumably brought in on rounds to show people. Um, RSC, the, the, because of this anecdotal evidence, um, it had actually been uh, studied in a clinical trial, and at least in this clinical trial, it had not worked. But my dad had seen it work in his experience. He went to the patient, explained to her, we would like to try this drug, even though it hasn't been definitively proven. <laughs> patient said she was willing to try, that she trusted him. And indeed, she got better within a couple of days. And I, I like these two quotes um, from my dad. Uh, after, about this case. He wrote, this was a beautiful demonstration of the value of a specialist in a given situation. And this is really a minutia type of therapeutic maneuver and can only come about through word of mouth and personal experience. Um, I do not recommend you going back to the wards today and writing those words in a chart. Uh, but that was very much this era in which uh, doctors felt comfortable doing this sort of thing in particular cases. Case number four, uh, AIDS came to Cleveland more or less in the late 1980s, about five or so years after we were seeing it in New York. Uh, and this was a, a, a case that my dad got very involved in. Actually, by the time my dad started seeing this man, who was in his late 30s, he'd already been diagnosed with AIDS. He'd had several opportunistic infections already and had no, basically no T cells. Uh, and, um, as ID doctors did in that era, he put him on that very uh, complicated regimen of preventive pills and AZT and was able to keep the patient alive for actually for two and a half years and largely out of the hospital. But during this time, uh, the patient was developing a swollen abdomen and his liver and spleen were getting larger. My dad suspected that he was, uh, had developed a lymphoma uh, which was common in, in AIDS patients in that era. And um, his spleen was getting larger and larger and more and more painful. They treated him initially with outpatient opiates, but they weren't working. And finally, the patient was in terrible agony. They brought him into the hospital. And by this point, he was extraordinarily wasted and just had this huge liver and spleen, uh, which were giving him terrible, terrible pain. So th there was a fork in the road here. And that uh, possi one possibility would have been to say, well, why don't we try to do a biopsy of maybe the liver or lymph node and try to diagnose what's going on here and maybe treat him. Uh, but my dad wrote at that time, chemotherapy would be too hard for him to tolerate. Um, and what he did instead was to wrote, write for morphine uh, as a, a morphine drip. And the patient died a, a few days later, and he never specifically told the patient about this decision, but went and did it himself. Um, now, how did my dad justify doing what he did? Um, he had written in his notes about this case that he and his patient had a tacit understanding, again, a phrase I wouldn't put in a, in a modern chart. Um, but what, what he meant here was that over time, my dad had actually tried to broach the subject of the probable lymphoma with the patient, and every time he did, the patient seemed to deflect it. He didn't want to talk about it, he changed the subject. And my dad took this as an understanding that it was my dad's bailiwick to decide what to do about this 
when the time came. Uh, here's a quote from my dad that he wrote about the patient dying uh, toward the end in the ICU. Uh, and my dad wrote, he squeezed my hand in return as he smiled at me, thanking me, I think, for being so concerned about him. Now, my dad was not without insight into what was going on here. After, after all, this was the late 1980s. As I said before, bioethics was rearing its head and it was being discussed, not only at Columbia, but at Case. Uh, so my dad was willing to say, I admit, that this is medical paternalism at its very extreme. Uh, he was actually wrong about that. Case five is medical paternalism at its very extreme, coming up soon. Um, but I, I also like this quote that he wrote about this case. Um, he, he said, uh, I know what I did was right because all of my colleagues who helped me care for him, and there were many, were equally relieved that his suffering was over and the end came swiftly and peacefully. And I, I like this quote because it is reminiscent of, you know, you can almost convey, uh, construe an image here of the doctors and nurses standing at the nursing station talking amongst themselves and, and saying, you know, it's time for him to die. Um, let's just give him morphine. In, in a way that you could really, a conversation would be so hard to imagine now. Now it would be all about, well, we've got to go call a family meeting, and we've got to go talk to the patient, and they've got to make the decision. But this was a sort of a quiet decision among people who cared for him, felt he was suffering, and wanted to do what they thought was the right thing. So I'll give you case five now. Case five was a woman, my dad was seeing also in her 70s, who had severe, as I understand, drug-resistant rheumatoid arthritis. They had tried everything, every uh, you know, immunosuppressant they could think of, and she was getting worse and worse. She also had very bad vascular disease. So she basically had been bedbound for years. She um, was so um, debilitated, she couldn't, they couldn't even get her into a wheelchair. So she just lay in her bed. And she had been admitted with an infection to Mount Sinai three months earlier. So now she'd been in the hospital for three months after being bedbound for three years. And what was going on at Mount Sinai was she kept getting an infection after infection. So she would get one, she'd spike, they'd try to culture it, my dad would prescribe antibiotics, she would defervesce, but sure enough, another one would come. And the reason was she basically had no integument on her body anymore. She was so swollen and so hypoalbuminemic that she just had no tissue protecting herself. And my, she had massive tissue breakdown, particularly of her back and buttocks. And, and this quote, um, I think, is very important, what my, the way my dad described her daily existence. Every time this woman moved or was even touched, the raw, denuded skin would be further abraded, bleed, and give her agonizing pain as the sheets of dressings were pulled away. So uh, I, I put this in there to convey what her daily existence was like. It basically was pain. And, and even when you were trying to help her, all you did was cause more skin sloughing and more pain. And she was getting worse. Uh, the patient was not DNR. I don't exactly know the reasons. My dad was a consultant, not the primary doctor. Uh, my guess is she was not DNR because she didn't have a terminal disease. She had rheumatoid arthritis and vascular disease, not stage four cancer, for example. Um, so she was not DNR. One morning on rounds, um, they, my dad and the team came in to see her as the ID team, and it was clear she had just died. She had no pulse and was not breathing, but she was still warm. 
And my dad said, do not dare call a code on this woman. It's completely inappropriate. Um, as I understand, there was sort of a quiet in the room, a little murmuring. And uh, my dad and the ID team left to go see the next patient. Shortly thereafter, uh, they hear above uh, code blue or whatever they called it there. And someone had gotten cold feet and called an arrest. And the team was running into the room to see the patient and to do start CPR. Um, at this point, my dad did something extraordinary. Um, he actually physically placed his body on top of the patient and basically thwarted any efforts at trying to resuscitate her. And after a certain amount of time, the team gave up and the patient was uh, allowed to remain dead. Um, one of the, one of the uh, interesting things about his, using his journals is sometimes when my dad would discuss these cases with me directly, he would then write about our discussion in his journals. So it gets sort of meta. But um, this was one of those cases, because he had told me about this at the time. So he told me the story. Uh, and I, he wrote that I was aghast. And I said, you can't do that sort of thing. And I remember. Uh, I, at the time, I was sitting on the Ethics Committee at Columbia, and I, I certainly thought if I had come into the Columbia Ethics Committee and presented this case, you know, not using any names, it, it would have created an outrage there and, and indeed probably generated some type of uh, inquiry at the hospital level, which it did not uh, at my dad's hospital. Um, but my dad defended what he had done. He said what he had done was correct and merciful. And again, a great quote from his writings, I acted in the name of common, ordinary humanity and based on my 30 plus years as a physician responsible for caring for and relieving the pain of my patients who can't be cured. OK, let me give you some uh, few concluding remarks. And we'll have a couple minutes to talk, I hope. Um, first is a bunch of caveats, which are uh, pretty obvious here. Um, there's no going back. So I, this talk is not, I'm not suggesting that we can or should go back to a paternalistic era. Uh, it's not possible. I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, autonomy and informed consent are very much here to stay. Uh, in no way would I think uh, that some of the stuff my dad did, where he was manipulating information to get patients to do things, is appropriate at all. There's other barriers to, to revi revisiting that era in medicine, uh, some of which Dr. Kirkland already alluded to. The biggest one, I think, is time. I mean, my dad did have this time, extra time he could spend with his patients, which is much harder for us now. We have work hour restrictions uh, that, that was mentioned. Uh, we, you know, we now kick the house staff out of the hospital uh, instead of making them stay all the time. It's harder for them to have continuity with patients. Um, we have lives outside of medicine. Uh, this is encouraged. Um, I, I think, you know, to some degree, it's a good thing that, that people at a conference like this are actually awake, in contrast to our era, where pretty much everyone, I think, was asleep. Certainly, the house staff was. Uh, and we have had have now night floats in hospitalists. So that continuity that my dad could provide his patients of these were his outpatients, and then he followed them to the hospital, and they came back and saw him, that has been disjointed, as we know. Um, and now there's lots of handoffs. So it, medicine has changed dramatically. 
But <coughs> nevertheless, I think that we can try to take advantage of some of these changes in medicine and recall some of the advantages of the earlier era to try to incorporate some of the best of that <coughs> type of medicine into our daily practices. So a couple obvious points. Uh, you know, if you're actually out of the hospital and you're pretty well rested, when you're in the hospital, uh, you may have more energy, you may feel less burned out, you may be more motivated to, to take care of your patients. Um, I think being outside the hospital, you know, again, can rejuvenate you. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with spending some of your time outside of the hospital catching up in your medical week, which uh, my dad really had to do late at night and early in the morning when he wasn't doing other things. Um, for those of us doing outpatient medicine predominantly, it's okay to go visit your inpatients just because this hospital is taking care of them and try to provide some continuity. It's actually nice to not have to write the notes and do the orders. Um, I think we can try to pick up on patient distress. That's something my dad, I thought, was uh, very good at. I heard many stories from people telling me about how on ID rounds, it was common that if there was some kind of disturbance going on in a patient's room, that the ID team would take a detour from the ID patients and go into that room. And my dad felt that his gravitas at the institution would help. And he would say, what's going on here? And why is there? Uh, why are there problems? And you know, they often just stayed for a few minutes, but he felt that was part of his job as well. Um, I think we can embrace, uh, which I'm sure you guys are doing here as well. We're trying to do this at Bellevue with a patient-centered medical home, try to do more of a team approach to patient care. And the idea there being, I think, if uh, you've got nurses and NPs and PAs and social workers doing some of the jobs of the doctors, it may free us doctor, the doctors to do more doctoring and have some of these more meaningful discussions. Um, try to get to know who your patients are. Now, I'd be the first to say this is really hard these days, right? Uh, I get 15 or 20 minute blocks to see my patients. I do try to carve out at least two to three minutes every visit to talk about something that's not medical. I uh, can't always do it, but I try to engage the patient. Sometimes I say, let's just talk about something else you want to talk about. Tell me something going on in your family. I write it down in my notes, and when I review the notes before the next visit, I try to talk about it again. Um, more concretely, uh, I, I try to um, do something like diagnosing the patient's preferences and values. So I, again, this is something that I think my dad tried to do. Get to know your patient's philosophy of medicine. Are they someone who wants very aggressive things done? Are they someone who um, is more willing to wait back and see, might not want aggressive testing. So when and if the time comes for these decisions, you have a background for understanding what your patient would and wouldn't want. All of this being a way to avoid what my dad really hated, which was this menu of options, where the doctors now just said, OK, here are the four choices, and you decide. Uh, I think this is particularly relevant in an era that's getting talked about now about personalized and individualized medicine to the degree that diseases are now, we're finding that they're genetically based and trying to, we're trying to develop specific treatments that are guided to these particular conditions and there may be one best treatment. I think it will be helpful to have a doctor-patient relationship in which patients trust their doctors when there really are no good choices, there's one choice, to uh, work with their doctors to choose the right treatment. And, and finally, because a bunch of the cases I talked about were related to end-of-life care, 
Uh, I don't have to tell you folks about how costs are out of control at the end of life in a, in a Medicare population, and we're spending so much of the Medicare dollars on interventions that don't aren't proven to prolong life or uh, to, or prolong death and, and with a poor quality of life. And uh, I think it's time to revisit uh, the debates over medical futility, even though we don't want to talk about it. My dad certainly got very involved, as I suggest, at the end of his career in issues of end of life. He felt as the ID doctor, he was being, he was the main person in the hospital who was keeping demented, uh, end-stage dying patients alive by his ability to flip antibiotics around, and he became increasingly uncomfortable with it, and felt that putting decisions in patients' and families' hands in these cases was the wrong thing to do. Asking how autonomous were patients and families really in these complicated, difficult, emotionally distraught circumstances. So to the degree that we can build relationships and empower doctors and nurses to help patients and families in these circumstances pull back in ways that they are comfortable, that I think is a way to remind us of the sort of medicine that, we, that in a sense has been lost and try to recreate it in our modern era. And I will stop there. So thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for a very provocative talk that gives me new insights into how you became who you are. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have questions or comments, so let me open it up for that. Maybe we can turn the lights on. So you uh, brought up the subject of burnout. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder, do you really think that docs today are less burned out or more burned out than your dad's generation? Uh, good, good question. I, of course, I'm going to punt and say both. Um, I, I, I'm referring, the, the burnout I was referring to was, was physical burnout. Um, and, and my dad spent his evenings, for example, writing papers uh, at the kitchen table a retrospective case studies that got published. And uh, he went to bed really late and got up really early and was exhausted all the time. Uh, and you know, and, and, and was crabby a lot of the time at home and short-tempered, I think, because he was so tired. So I, that, that's the sort of burnout that, that I was referring to. But I, I know what you're alluding to, which is the other kind of burnout my dad was having at the end of his career, which was frustration over the bureaucracy of medicine and how our hands are being tied. Uh, and indeed, that's what led him to retire from actually clinical practice earlier than he might have otherwise. Um, so he knew that sort of frustration as well. And we all know the data of doctors retiring early, and he was one of those. Um, but, but nevertheless, I do feel, uh, and maybe this is just my personal opinion, uh, the notion of getting out of the hospital, being well rested, even when, when I encounter the frustrations in my clinic, I feel I'm better apt to, to handle them. At the risk of getting myself in trouble. <laughs> and there's a, a big discussion to be had around this. I'm going to agree with your father in case five. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, merciful, it was kind, and it was very courageous what he did. Uh, what was missing was the conversation, uh, but that was a very brave thing to do. Uh, 
Thank you. Um, yes, the, this, the journey of my book, uh, as you might imagine, is one of me revisiting my own allegiance to what I was taught, what, while very much understanding why, in a sense, that had to happen. I think uh, we had to go through a period in medicine of allegiance to autonomy and informed consent because it was a re rejection of what had gone before, but we, the pendulum probably went too far. And I think you can go back. And, and what I do in, in that case and other cases in the book is to say to myself um, that there's a reason doctors in that era did what they did. There's a reason that doctors like my dad were felt to be the most ethical doctors in their era, even though they seemingly were doing the opposite of bioethics. So I, I very much appreciate the comment. Well, getting back to case five, yes. was there any uh, evidence that there had been a serious discussion to the patient about the options yeah. regarding resuscitation? Um, you know, I asked my dad about it, um, and the best uh, the best I could tell was uh, I think it had been vaguely discussed. I, my sense was that the primary doctor was someone who was one of the doctors who didn't particularly like to have those conversations or wasn't good at it. And people were sort of deferring. And part of it was this woman was going on and on and on so much, nobody really was anticipating this happening. So, so uh, you know, I do agree that, and, and you know, I think push come to shove, my dad w wished he hadn't had to do what he did, and this had been done before, um, which is all to the point about the need to have these discussions earlier. And indeed, if you feel like your colleague is not doing something promptly to try to come up with a mechanism for fostering that sort of discussion. Yeah, for what it, is, what it is worth, I was born same year as your dad uh -huh. entered medical school, three years ahead of him. Uh -huh. and I feel that the process of decision making was much better done in the early days as compared to, the, compared to today. And the reason is that I think today we don't really know who's in charge. Whereas in your dad's era, in the era when I was training, it was quite clear that who was in charge was in charge. Yep. Yeah, I, I think you know, uh, uh, you know, one of the points you can make to, to concur with that is, you know, in, in an era of autonomy where we say the patients are in charge or the family's in charge, you know, they often don't want to necessarily be in charge, and they may not have the insight and knowledge to do that. Yet we've put them in charge. So I agree, it creates it almost creates an ambiguity under the rubric of patient autonomy. Uh, when I was a medical student, we uh, had the fortune of being trained by. Dan Clouser and Bastion, uh, and I had them for four years. We had a Department of Humanities courses throughout medical school, and we felt very grounded when we graduated. And obviously, with so much stuff to, to keep in the curriculum, how are you approaching the teaching of medical ethics at, 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 your, at your medical school? You know, I, I unfortunately, I wish I could say that we, you know, that we, we've got the magic formula. You know, unfortunately, it still tends to be a bit of an outlier. Um, you know, we've done things both at Columbia and NYU where we've integrated it into a larger course to legitimize it and to try to have the issue, the ethical and humanities issues concurrent with the medical discussion. So, you know, talking about the ethics of CPR when you're learning about the heart and things like that. Um, and, you know, now we, we have also introduced something called a concentration. So students, at least those particularly interested in these areas, can take extra courses over throughout their four years and study it. Um, but you know it, it, it's hard. I, you know I think, and, and we now at NYU we have the first set of three-year students. 
we just admitted for this year students, I think 15 or 20 who are going to do uh, medical school in three years. And we're in, in our area, we're very freaked out that the exact stuff that's going to get cut out is this sort of thing. So, you know, I think it's all to the point. I think the students who actually get this education and, and once they get it, really appreciate it and it stays with them for their whole careers. So there's also one over here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess also, um, you know, in, in two days I'm going to be in Haiti for a week mm. as a ward attending, and, and I'm not sure that I think medicine is changing as much there as it is here, and, and we kind of think this is what's happening in medicine, but it's not happening this way in, in France or yeah. in other countries. Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel our profession is being held hostage to the finances. Of, of what's happening. You know, we, hospitalists were created so hospitals could control the admissions and discharges to the beds of, of the hospitals. I think the our our electron our, our medical record is is we're counting pieces of the body we examine and, and charging patients you know, most of the time fictitiously for for what we examine. We're we're uh, uh, we have an electronic medical record that gets more attention than the patient. I often tell my residents, the patient looks like crap, the, red, the, the chart looks good. Um, right. I, I just think we're ignoring the elephant in the room. And, and you know, we also, we have medical students coming out with a quarter million dollar debt who can't choose the profession. That we've got surgeons being paid $800,000 a year. And now, we've have, now physicians are employees, and we think that insurance executives and hospital executives will decrease the cost of medicine and find out the proper path for, you know. So, so everyone's living off of the breast of, <laughs> of medical work. Uh, and I just think we, unless we change that, yeah. it's going to continue to deteriorate. Yeah, no, I, I just say amen. Uh, my dad, you know, as I, as I alluded to, but that, that's the exact sort of thing he was articulating toward the end of his career. And, it, you know, it broke his heart. He, at one point he said, I'm so glad these changes are happening at the end of my career because I don't know what I would have done. And he said he felt so bad for me to have to deal with it. I, of course, I said to him, at least my expectations were this sort of thing, but no, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's an, unf it, it's become just a, you know, the system itself has just gotten turned around. So, so this is sort of a segue. To mm -hmm. that. Um, yes. Is, um, you did a very beautiful job in delineating the advantages and limitations of what was a prior era. You sort of hypothesized what you will think of this era it went 20 years from now. And what and what uh, things that we have been able to change that um, we'll look back on and say that was great. Um, it's a it's a great question for a historian, um, but um, I, I guess the main thing I would say um, is that I think people will. Look, I hope <laughs> that in 25 to 50 years, people look back at this era, particularly with respect to the issue of aggressive end-stage technological care in this country versus other countries and say, what did those people think they were doing and how did they get stuck in that situation? And, and look at the sort of patients among those I described, among that are probably sitting in your ICU now and you're like, how did these people get here and how are we doing this sort of thing? Um, and, and you know, the historians will go back and there'll be explanations for it, some of which were alluded to, the fact that the, the, the money issues, um, I think the need to put patients' rights in the forefront. So I think we'll go back in time. And I do think that the pendulum, at least with respect to informed consent and autonomy, is gently swinging back to try to come up with ways 
again, to empower doctors to offer interventions that are more scientifically grounded than grounded purely in autonomy. So that's my guess and my hope also. I was going to ask you to write another book and have that be from the patient's point of view. Ah. Because as you were talking mm-hmm. about your father and the differences, I was thinking about my mother and the differences. Mm-hmm. My mother being a patient, he would say, yes, doctor, whatever you think, you just tell me and I'll do it. And if you have me as your patient, I'm your nightmare because I say, I want to see the evidence. And <laughs> right. I want to do that test unless you can show me that it's really going to show me the difference. And so um, it would be interesting to see that story from that, and what the patients and bring in those whole ideas of cultural diversity and and how that complicates this picture of the, the really different values that we have to acknowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that's a great point. I think, um, and I think we would all agree, I, among my patients, uh, you know, I've got patients like you and I've got patients like your mom. Uh, and my dad was very comfortable with that. He, especially toward the end of his career, as he got more autonomous patients, one of the stories I tell in the book is of a guy who comes in, another HIV patient who's dying, who insists on going on a ventilator and getting everything until the end. And my dad said, you're going to die in the ventilator. And he said, I want a full car press. And my dad reluctantly did that. So he understood how things were changing. Um, but he also had patients who deferred to him. And, and we do that, too. And I think, again, it's the art of medicine. Uh, again, to use that phrase, and and I think that when I have patients who are super duper empowered, and sometimes I think maybe a little too empowered, I try to gently push back and try to use my expertise. And when I have patients who are too deferential, I try to engage them again and say, you know what, don't, I, I don't want to be making all these decisions. I, I want this to at least be a partnership, even if you want my advice, which I'm willing to give you. So that's a great point. So I want to thank you for really intriguing and just to say that uh, Dr. Warner will be at level 5A on the Tuesday night, 30 and 30, and we have some people gathering to discuss more about the